We'll turn in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, if you would, to uh, the section on the larger catechism. We're looking at larger catechism, this is page 951, larger catechism 99. Last time we looked at the first uh, of these uh, rules, the rules that are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments. Tonight we're going to look at the second number two. So I'll re-ask the question. I'll give the answer up till the colon, and then we'll look at two. We'll say two together, if you would. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? Let's answer together. For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed, too, that it is spiritual and so reacheth the understanding, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul, as well as words, works, and gestures. And then, our text is a very familiar passage. Last time we looked at the law as perfect, we looked at James 2, just to keep you on track there, if you didn't happen to be here for that. Tonight we're thinking of the spirituality of the law, and we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, a part of it here. Matthew 5, we'll begin reading in verse 17 to the end of this chapter, which is verse 48. This is God's holy and infallible word. Matthew 5, 17. Our Lord says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them would be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it 
that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate your neighbors. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Herein ends the reading of the word. May God bless it to all of our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, do give us seeing eyes and hearing ears and believing hearts now. And take this word home. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the law is spiritual, not only concerned with the outward words, works, and gestures. But firstly, with the inward, the understanding, the will, the affections, and all other powers of the soul, that is the inner person, it's spiritual, which means it's concerned with the whole of our inner person. This is evident here in our Lord's exposition of it. This greater than Moses, this one who is the true Israel of God. This is how Matthew, in his gospel, is particularly portraying Jesus here. Matthew shows us this beginning with his genealogy in chapter 1. And we see Jesus going down to and coming out from Egypt in chapter 2. Just like Israel went down and came out of Egypt. And even as Israel was baptized in her miraculous Red Sea passage, remember Paul talks about that as their baptism, going through those waters and emerging in the salvation of the Lord. We see our Lord baptized by John the Baptist in chapter 3. I'm just bringing you up to where we are, chapter 5 here in Matthew. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm talking about the genealogy. I'm talking about chapter 2, Jesus coming out of Egypt. Chapter 3, him being baptized by John. And then chapter 4, for 40 days and nights, our Lord endures wilderness temptations. As Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years... Except Jesus prevailed and never yielded to temptation. Israel typically did, often did. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see in the genealogy that it's told one of the, big, the great breaking points of the genealogy is the deportation to Babylon. So not only did Israel go to Egypt, but Israel, because of her unfaithfulness in the land, went to Babylon, not Jesus. He was 
faithful, the true Israel. He was the lawgiver, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, obeying even, even inwardly, perfectly, and instructing us in kingdom life in a fallen world, telling us how we ought to live as the Israel of God, as His people now, washed in His blood, robed in His righteousness. And so here we have it before us. More than Moses on Mount Sinai ever did, Christ in this sermon shows the spirituality of the law. That was always the case. But Christ discloses it as never before understood or properly seen. And we see here in his showing the spirituality of the law, which is our present concern tonight, our larger catechism concern. We see with regard then to the law's spirituality, we're going to focus on, it's a four-pointer again, of four things. First of all, the law deals with the heart. Secondly, we're all exposed as desperate sinners. Thirdly, Christ came to fulfill the law. And lastly, we in him as well. We are to walk with him in this kingdom way. So, the law deals with the heart. It is spiritual after all. We're all, because of that, exposed as desperate sinners. We see that Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly, fully, inwardly, and outwardly so that he might bring us into this kingdom that we might live and walk with him. Well, we say, first of all, then, the law deals with the heart. The whole of the inner man, biblically, you've heard us say many times, different ones from this pulpit, that the biblical conception of heart is the whole of the inner man. It involves the understanding, the will, the affections. It's not simply the intellect. It's, we often speak of head versus heart. It, you can speak in those ways, but biblically the heart is the whole inner man. And so because the law deals with the heart, it deals not just with the outward words or works or gestures, not just its outward manifestations, this was, of course, the great mistake of the Pharisees. You understand this, I trust? The Pharisees characteristically didn't really get, or want to get, that the law deals with the heart. They thought that one was fine, and they certainly were, if you didn't actually murder someone or commit adultery with another. And surely many today, in and out of the church but particularly out of the church, consider themselves quite righteous because their outward conduct, well, it's at least good enough. How many people do you run into? I mean, how many neighbors? How many co-workers? How many people sitting at the desks next to you think, well, you know, I'm not so bad. The Pharisees would have said, well, we do the law. But many people have their own version of that. I'm a pretty good person. Jesus, however, listen to what he says about the Pharisees. In Matthew, right, you go to chapter 23, he says a whole bunch of stuff that I won't quote. I'll just point you to Matthew 23, and he says that the Pharisees are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He says they're vipers, they're serpents. He says kind of conclusory, they're headed for hell. 
wow. That, that's shocking. That would have certainly been shocking to every Israelite that heard it. That the Pharisees are headed for hell because they were regarded by people generally, and they certainly promoted themselves as such. They regarded themselves as such. And they promoted themselves as paragons of virtue. We're the righteous people. We're the holy people. And Jesus says they're headed for hell. Even more shocking then, we hear in our sermon before us, our Lord Jesus say in verse 20, get how shocking this would be. If everybody thought it was shocking that the Pharisees were said by Jesus to be headed for hell, even more shocking, verse 20, when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed theirs. Your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. It must exceed the teachers of the law. As far as the people listening to this would have heard, your righteousness must exceed the most righteous people that you know. That's how they would have heard that. And I'm sure there would have been a big gulp. I don't mean from 7-Eleven or whatever. I mean just <sighs> gulp. Wow. What is Jesus saying? Meek, mild, gentle, sweet Jesus, you know? Your, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That was pretty, pretty jarring. This is because true righteousness must be that of a heart and not merely outward. Real righteousness, in other words, must be not one that does not inwardly cherish sin. True righteousness is not content with just outward appearing of righteousness, but does not cherish sin in the heart. The hateful look or thought, Jesus then goes on to tell us. And he gives us ways in which that plays out in terms of, of going to court and wanting to go to court and wanting to be right and, and retaliating, all sorts of things throughout the whole passage. But verses 21 to 26, the focus is on this. He says the hateful look or thought is murder in seed form. The beginning of murder, our Lord says in other words, is unjust anger inwardly. That's the beginning of murder. It's sin there. Unjust anger. Hating your brother. Thinking he's a fool and then calling him one. It's sin inwardly and not only when it breaks out into words. I think we know what that is. The fool. I hate you. Some variant of that. Works. And gestures. Gestures means something you not even say. Like, I was driving the other day and someone, I don't know, were they upset? I know what the left turn signal is. I know the right turn signal, but they made a signal with their hand and they seemed to be yelling things. But a hand signal that wasn't a right turn signal or a left turn signal, some of you are getting it. Others are looking perplexed because you're so godly and I appreciate that. The lustful glare or thought, Jesus goes on to say in verses 27 to 30, right? The lustful glare or thought is adultery in seed form. So he talks about murder in seed form. He talks about adultery in seed form. Desiring to have someone other than your own wife. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 7. Let each have his own wife or her own husband. Very clear, very clear. 
So desiring to have, and I think you know what I mean by that, someone other than your own wife or your own husband, which he says must be radically dealt with. We'll come back to that. And he says this is sin, not only when it breaks out in word, works, and gestures. A gesture might be the wink of an eye. So, what does he say here? Our Lord says, for divorce, for oaths, for retaliation, for loving your enemy, the heart matters in it all. Because the law is spiritual. The law doesn't stop on the outside. And you look okay. And if you thought, well, you know, okay. I mean, even in the Old Covenant. No, it's, it's, it's more searching in the new. It's more searching in the new. Because what do you have there at the very beginning of the church? You ever think of this? In Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Why do those people die? Because God wants to make it very clear. I don't want a pretense of righteousness. I don't want a pretense of holiness. I'm not interested in people looking holy. I'm interested in people being holy. So don't play like you gave all the money when you didn't give all the money. I mean, do you, well, I always love it when you talk about this. They didn't have to give all the money. Yeah, yes, capitalist friends, the, the, the point of the thing is not that they had to give all the money. Granted. But what happens there is they're more interested in portraying themselves in a certain way than was really true of them. Isn't that a temptation to us as Christians? To clean the outside. That's what he said about the Pharisees. But not worry so much about the inside. Well, because the law is spiritual, our Lord points here um, to the fact that it exposes us all as desperate sinners. So that's the first thing we've seen, that the law touches the heart. But secondly, because it touches the heart, because the spiritual nature of it penetrates the whole of our being, we're all exposed as desperate sinners. You might say that's kind of the first thing. We speak of a first, second, and third use of the law. And the first use of it is when you really get it, you see what a sinner you are and how you need Jesus. If you haven't ever seen that, you don't understand the law. And people have said, I remember once, uh, this is where I was interning, and this woman brought this fellow, and oh, he's wonderful, and he's a Christian. We didn't know this fellow, we didn't know where he was from. And this would, she was an older woman, I think in her 70s, and he was in his 70s, it was going to be their second marriage. And the pastor just said, well, does he have church membership? No, he's a, but he's a Christian. And the pastor said, what? He just said, oh, are you a Christian? He said, yes. He said, what makes you a Christian? The pastor asked him. And he said, I keep the law. Well, the pastor didn't go, <laughs> That's good. That's, you're obviously a Christian. The pastor was like, hmm, not a Christian, or very confused. Yeah, he wasn't. He didn't understand that we're desperate sinners. He had a pharisaical, if that, conception of the law. We often say pharisaical. The Pharisees actually had a, their outward, the outward requirements were pretty high for them. A lot of people don't even think too much or bother with that now. But the law shows us to be sinners. Now, most have never done, right, or ever will do the ultimate of these deeds, what Jesus is describing here. Well, certainly not murder, we would say. However, you've had angry, hateful thoughts about a spouse, 
a child, your child, a friend, teacher, boss. Now I'm going to say this one and you're going to say, well, you can't say this. And yes, I can. Politician. Well, I can think uh, terribly about politicians. No, you can't actually. You don't get to think, I know it's kind of American sport. I understand it. But you don't get to really say, I hate this person in my heart. We love to do this publicly. We, I don't know if you notice it, but we love when celebrities fall. I guess it makes us feel better about ourselves. We're, pre- we're pretty pathetic as a society. We love to see people crash down. I knew it. They got what was coming to them. And what's coming to you? You're so much better than them? Hmm. I really doubt it. So, though you've likely actually killed no one, I'm assuming, though you've actually probably not killed anyone, Jesus says in one sense you have. So stop saying I've not killed someone. Stop, Stop making that a point of some pride. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, that's what they were doing. You know, I haven't killed anybody, and people say that. And, and they feel good about themselves because they think, well, I've done other things. But see, it's not that bad, you know. I mean, taking paper clips, boxes and boxes of them from the office, <laughs> it's not a problem. I haven't killed anybody. It debases, when we say this, it debases the high spiritual character of the law. It debases the high spiritual character of the law to sort of try to tame it, to make it keepable, to make it sort of our own. Now, the law is a standard. It reflects, we saw last time when we saw that the law is perfect, it reflects the character of God. It's something objective. It's something outside of us. And we don't match up to it. We don't meet up to it. We're all murderers. Not only in thought, but in words. As I said, saying nasty things to each other. Or works. Slamming a fist into the wall. Pushing something around. Throwing a glass. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I often have this conversation with men, and they say, I never hit her. Well, let me say something to you. If you manifest anger, that sends the signal to people, people around you, people under you, that they better stay in line, or this could be brought to them. Oh, I never intended that. I don't know how many guys I've had say to me, I never intended that. Well, I'm not so sure you didn't. I'm not so sure you know yourself. I'm not so sure you're being honest. But the fact of the matter is, if you're doing in the presence of of a wife and children, if you're doing violent kinds of things, it's not lost on them. It's not lost on them. And it's violent to be, be, you know, putting... Well, I just... I never hurt them. Yes, I did. Okay, six times I put my fist through the wall. I had a guy say that to me. You're like... You know, I want to handcuff him. <laughs> You're under arrest. Oh, that's right. That's the power of the church, of the state. We don't have that power. But, <laughs> yeah. Notice how we, we even make light of our sin. Jesus sure doesn't. 
We're all murderers. We're all adulterers, at least inwardly. We know how men do it inwardly and with the eyes, looking lustfully and acting it in various ways, online and elsewhere. Women, romantic fantasies. A, a woman once said in counseling, as things were being dealt with, she confessed that she always hoped that the knock on the door would be the police with news of her husband's death so that she could pursue that single rich guy at the office. And you say, well, nobody thinks like that. People think all kinds of things who look glorious on the outside. This is the nature of sin. It's inward. That's what this question is about. The short of it, the short of it all is this. Our righteousness in our own strength and by our own power does not, listen, does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, truth be told, we're often besotted with sin, given over to our characteristic flesh in vile and alarming ways. We must get serious about dying to it. You say, well, where do you get that from? Jesus, right here in verses 29 and 30? I don't know of anything stronger in the Bible. If your right eye causes you to sin, that very strong language he uses. And he says, it's better than to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He's saying, deal with sin radically. Deal with it effectively. Deal with it as it should be dealt with. Talk to someone as needed. Maybe an accountability partner. The pastor here, one of the elders. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that just as purely hit and run because I'm not a pastor and I can say this and head out. But no, that's what they're here for. They know their hearts. They know their sin. They're willing to deal with sin. They're willing to help you. They're willing to speak with you. But Jesus is saying, get serious about it. I mean, there's no question about that here. Brothers and sisters, we're needy, desperate sinners. The law in its spiritual force shows us that. Thirdly, this is why we so need Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill the whole law for us. Thanks be to God, verse 17. Look at verse 17. It says, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I came to to fulfill. Christ came to fulfill the violated covenant of works. There was a covenant of works with Adam and he didn't didn't keep it. He didn't obey God. He ate the forbidden fruit. And we were condemned, all of us, in and by that act. For as in Adam, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, all die. In Adam, all die. In Christ are are all made alive. Think back to that Matthew 1 genealogy. I love to look at that at Christmas time. You know, we often do. And that Matthew 1 genealogy, if you actually look at the people who are the ancestors of our Lord, if you ever want to see an argument for the need for Jesus to come, his own ancestors are a great argument. They need saving, just like you and I need saving. Christ perfectly kept the law that Adam and we violated 
not merely outwardly, as the Pharisees, but inwardly, spiritually, being perfect. You know, all the way to the end of the chapter, Jesus says, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There was only one who was that, and that's Jesus. He fulfilled that. Because remember, we saw last time, 99.1, that the law requires perfection. Thanks be to God, Jesus met it, every bit of it, for you and for me. He perfectly kept the law that we violated, not just outwardly, but inwardly, spiritually. Jesus never had the slightest sin in thought, word, or deed. We know that. We've talked about that much. We talked about that when we looked at Hebrews a lot. Though he was sorely tempted, Matthew 4, right? We talked about the temptations. He was tempted to bypass the cross and go for the crown. He suffered both in submitting himself to keep the law for us, to fulfill the broken covenant of works, and in paying for our lawlessness in his passion, culminating in the cross and the tomb. He suffered for us, for us sinners. He suffered the penalty due us for our sin. He accomplished it all. Verse 18 goes on to say, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he for us accomplished it. He accomplished all righteousness, purchasing salvation for us, as we often say, by his active and passive obedience. And so you can read through the rest of Matthew and the other Gospels, which testify to that, that in Jesus living and dying, he fulfilled all righteousness. By his Spirit who brings Christ to us and us to Christ, this righteousness becomes ours, received by faith alone. It's a gift. God requires it, and he gives it to us. We receive it by faith. And as we say, we're brought into this by the Spirit, and we're empowered to live a new life. Not only are we justified, declared righteous, but we're sanctified. God works in us and enables us to die to sin, to live to righteousness. Not with the law swept away, but with the law in all its spiritual meaning and power written on our heart. This brings us to the last point, right? We've seen that the law speaks to the heart. It's spiritual. It shows us we're desperate sinners. Christ fulfilled it all. All of this is in our text. And lastly, we say, in him, we native lawbreakers, by Adam's sin and our own, have become in a measure, in a small measure, law keepers. He's the great law keeper. But because we're in faith union with him, we have his perfect record. And now he empowers us to follow after him. The true Israel, we're now a part. We've been brought in. The middle wall of partition is down. We're now a part of the true Israel because Jesus is that true Israel of God. We're his people. We follow after as we walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, not with lives full of anger. Now you go back through this. Yes, we see how we fail, how we fall. But what a, all of this is slavery. All of this sin that Jesus describes as slavery, and he's calling us to freedom. And we saw the last time in James, the perfect law of liberty. The law actually is the charter of freedom. The law says, here's, a, here's the way to walk. Here's the way to live. Not with lives full of anger, lust, 
wrongful divorce, false swearing, retaliation, and hate for enemies. We're, we're not working through the details of this. This is from the confession or catechetical point, an overview. This chapter deserves to be preached in detail. We are to walk not with hatred for God and neighbors, but with wholehearted love to God and unselfish love to others. That's really what's being described here, unselfish love to others. It's so easy in the flesh to be filled with the opposite. It's easy to be filled with hatred, to live and walk in resentment, in self-pity, in bitterness, with a heart closed to God and neighbor. What's being described here, what Jesus is describing, is the law wants our heart open to God and neighbor. A heart open to God and neighbor. Not closed. Not, as one of my kids cleverly said to me once, a little joke. They said, Dad, you know, opera singers are so self-centered. And I said, yeah, more so than anybody else. And they said, yeah, they always say, me, 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 me. Well, me, 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 me. That's a lot of our lives. It can be. Singing the song of myself a little Walt Whitman there. But when you know Christ's love in fulfilling all righteousness, you can do the opposite. You can, you can be thankful to the Father always for Jesus. And knowing Jesus' graciousness and forgiveness by the Spirit's application, you can seek to be that to others. You have been so graciously received. You've been forgiven a mountain of sin. And it gives you a loving, forgiving heart even in what seem extraordinary ways. These, the, the Sermon on the Mount shows us what it really is all about. And if you feel like when you read it, you think, that's kind, I've had people say this to me as I've taught through this in detail, either teaching through it or preaching through it, and people will say, this is, uh, they've said different things, but I've had people say stuff, something like this, this is counterintuitive, or this is counterinstinctual. And I said, yes, it's very counter the flesh, I agree. When somebody slaps me on one cheek, which is an oriental way of speaking of an insult, I don't want to offer the other cheek to them. I want to I knock them down. I mean, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Jesus says. That's the so-called lex talionis. Well, I don't want that. I mean, if somebody took out my eye in the flesh, I mean, that actually, even there, the, the law restricted you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? If somebody took out your eye, they were to lose their eye. But again, I don't know about you, but if somebody took out my eye, I'd want to kill them. The same with the tooth. You're like, wow, you're really, yeah, okay. You shouldn't have hired me. Oh, that's right, I'm fired. But no, <laughs> I'm here. The, actually, God is always merciful, even in the, you know, the people act like eye for an eye, tooth for an eye. That's terrible. People always act like they're, they're more moral than God, you know. I wouldn't have that. It'd just be love for everybody. And then something gets done to them and they're like, you know, on the prowl <laughs> with a gun. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to, to do that. But when you know Christ's love, His graciousness, you can be gracious. Even when being shown hatred, we're to show love. Like God loved when you were still ungodly, Romans 5, 6. Your father gives good to all. Verse 45 says that. Verse 45 says, He sends the sunshine and the rain on the just and the unjust. Not just on those who are 
your friends. The Father, the Heavenly Father, loves in a manner that's not simply calculating like the tax collectors or the Gentiles who just love those who do good to them. And Jesus says, no, you're to do more than that. Let anger go. Die to lust. Don't pursue retaliation. Love. Don't insult back. Turn the other cheek. I have here social media temptations. I don't even know what that means. But turn the other cheek. Counterintuitive to the flesh. Go the second mile in showing kindness. This is counterintuitive. It's not worldly wisdom. Many vehemently reject it for this reason. Inconvenience yourself. This is what's being said here. Inconvenience yourself for the kingdom of heaven. Don't just live a comfortable life that pleases you. Inconvenience yourself for the kingdom of heaven. Serve beyond measure, even when uncomfortable. This is what the hymn writer means when he says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This kind of love demands of me all. It's people. And now, at the very beginning of our Lord's earthly ministry, He gave Himself. This wasn't a matter of comfort. This was giving His all. Be true children of the Heavenly Father and subjects of the King who came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. This is true kingdom greatness that grasps the spirituality of the law that doesn't try to bring the law down and tame the law, but lets the law expose us for who we are, lead us to Jesus, and then enable us in Jesus to live a new life. A life that is not like any that this world would ever call you to. A life of true service and self-giving. Father in heaven... Take home this different way, this kingdom imperative, this kingdom life to which we're called. We acknowledge, Father, that we're sinners through and through. We have no hope but Jesus. But help us in Him to more and more live in this way, in this way that He set forth in these verses that we read tonight. We We crave this, Father. We beg this of you to make us more like Christ, to make us more like these verses tell us to live in Jesus' name. Amen.